To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Yo, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So today on the podcast, I have on Santino Castellanos. So I met Santino about a year ago or so, and we've kept in touch and become friends. Uh, He's just a stellar dad. He's raising two teenage boys, and we talk about it on the podcast, but he's constantly getting these boys out for quality experiences in the outdoors, from fly fishing to hunting. And uh, we tell a story today, or he tells a story about uh, teaming up with his boy uh, to kill his first archery elk. And then also tells a story about a late season hunt. It was just wild where um, he got his two boys to double up on trophy mule deer uh, with bow and arrows, which is just amazing. So he spends a lot of time being a good dad and uh, being real intentional with the time that he spends with them. And uh, besides that, Santino is a killer himself. Uh, The guy is consistently successful with a bow in his hands. Uh, He hunts a mix of private and public, but... A lot of experience on public land, hunting elk, hunting mule deer, and hunting all over the country. He's an absolute wealth of knowledge, and I really enjoyed today's conversation, and I think you guys will too. Just want to thank my sponsors for today's show. I want to thank Matthews Bows. Uh, Matthews has just been killing it lately. I'm so impressed with their bows that they're putting out. Uh, you know, I fell in love with the verdicts, and then the V3 that I used last year uh, harvested my best bull to date handful of mule deer, uh, great bear. Uh, it, it just, it did its job for me last season. And then this year they came out with a new V3. I'm so impressed with this V3. Uh, I got my first harvest with it, uh, in a, a, a desert mule deer hunt in January. And I've been packing it around this bear season and thing is ready to eat. Uh, it's just shooting such good groups and it's just such a forgiving setup. They're easy to tune, and once you put a tune in these bows, it holds a tune throughout the season. So like last year's bow, I tuned at the beginning of the season, uh, spent a lot of time with it, and then I used it through 100-degree heat, multiple backpack hunts, uh, 10 below weather, uh, everything from rain to snow to sleet, and everything in between. And I got done with my season, and I shot an arrow through paper, and it was the exact tune I left it, a bullet hole. So it really holds a tune well. They're they're just forgiving shooters. I'm so impressed. This year's V3 is so quiet and um, just such a, a good shooter. Like the, the hold on target is amazing. Uh, I'm just so impressed by these bows. They're the best bows I've ever shot, I've ever used. And I'm so pumped to, to get this V3 out and get it some more work this season. Uh, so if you guys are in the market for a new bow, uh, make sure to shoot these Matthews. You you shoot them side by side with any other bow out there, and I guarantee you, like you, you're gonna love this bow. So uh, make sure to check them out. The new ones, that V3, I really like it. And thanks to Matthews for their support of the podcast. I also want to thank Zamberlin Boots. So Zamberlin Boots builds the highest quality boots that I've ever used. So they have such high standards for quality in their material, fabric, in their construction, so they can build you the absolute best pair of boots you've ever owned. So the last few years I've been using these, and I've been highly impressed. So I really like their 320 Trail Light Evo GTX. 
They're a low-height hiking boot. They're Gore-Tex and waterproof. And a lot of boots that I've previously owned tend to be waterproof for a month or two, and then it seems to to lose that and my feet get wet. Not with these Trailite Evo GTXs. I've owned them for two years, and my feet are still bone dry when I use them, as dry as the day I bought them. So impressed. And, and the quality, these boots just hold up. A lot of times I can get a season out of a hiking boot. I've got two seasons out of these, and they're still good to go for this season. So just absolutely amazing. And a lot of footwear comes down to personal preferences. Uh, make sure to check out Zamberlin as they have all different weights, uh, different different sizes, different construction to fit your needs uh, for what you like for hiking in the mountains. This year they released these lightweight hikers. So you guys that know me know that I love a lightweight hiking shoe, like a trail running shoe. So with the trail running shoe, they just need to be built burly and they need to be waterproof so you don't get dust and debris in there and so your feet don't get wet if the grass is wet. And, man, they knocked it out of the park with these things. I kind of feel like they were built for me, even though I know they're not. It's just the popularity of these lightweight hikers. But I've been using them this season, and I'm so impressed. So they have the 215 Saluth GTX RR. These things come in at under 2 pounds, but they've got the same quality of a boot. And they're, they're going to hold up to the abuse. They've got a Vibram sole on them, and they're waterproof. Just absolutely amazing. So again, those are the 215 Saluth GTX RRs. Uh, just a great hiking shoe. They also have a 214 Half Dome Velcro RR. Uh, they're really similar in style, these two shoes. Uh, and really, they're interchangeable for me. I can use either one, and I'm happy with both of them for hiking in the mountains. Uh, so I'm super impressed by these things and everything Zamberlin puts out. So if you're in the market for new shoes or boots, make sure to check them out at Zamberlin.com. And with that, make sure to check out everything we've got going on over there at Eastman's. Uh, make sure to check out Beyond the Grid Internet TV show, bunch of new episodes coming out there. Uh, check out the magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. and believe the next Bow Hunting Journal, I've got a couple articles coming out in I'm super excited about. One that's on extreme backpacking, and the other one's on uh, evolution of a bow hunter. Uh, so two really fun articles that I really enjoyed sitting down and writing. And um, yeah, make sure to check out Tag Hub. That's our internet research tool. Uh, they're always updating and improving this thing. Um, yeah, the thing's a beast. Uh, I used it all season to figure out which tags I was going to apply for in which states. And um Hoping a few of those come through to uh, fruition for this season. So uh, crossing my fingers for the draw for sure. And um, man, with me, I'm just in, in the middle of bear season here. It's finally started to get good here the last week. Uh, so I've just been hitting it hard, burning the candle at both ends and trying to get my work and responsibilities done and then get out for evenings and get out for weekends. So um, had a close call on a chocolate last week, and I think I'm up to about a dozen bears uh, a couple of those are grizzly bears. I kind of count those in my bear count as well. But uh, yeah, I saw a sow and a cub grizz the other day. And then um, this weekend went on a big backpacking trip. And so it was a solo backpacking trip, just a couple days, but um, put on a bunch of miles. Uh, reminds me how that, that pack weight is just such the equalizer. Uh, you know, I'm a little heavy with um, my pack, you know, heavier than I want to be for a two-day trip. But part of that is trying to carry that Glock 10M with me and then um, spotting scope, tripod, and then my good camera. 
So that alone has got me upwards of 30 pounds before I even put any gear in there close, you know, maybe not quite, but, um, yeah, it just reminds me how good a shape a guy's got to be in. Uh, it's easy to cover miles, but boy, you stick that 30, 40 pounds on your back and it sure slows progress and puts more exertion on me. So it uh, just reminds me I just got to train hard for a season and get my body you know, ready for this exertion and, and ready for taking a pack everywhere I go because that's the name of the game. But, um, man, it's just been awesome. Uh, got some really good excitement in the last week and uh, hope to have more. Get these podcasts out here today and... Got some Barney construction work to do, and um, hopefully this evening I'll I'll be back out looking for a big brune. So um, with that, let's get into this podcast. So this is a really good one. I really enjoyed this conversation with Santino, and he's one of the guys that's consistently successful that maybe you haven't heard of before. Uh, but he's really well-spoken. He's got great insight, and I really enjoyed it, and I think you guys will too. So Santino Castellanos. Eastman's Elevated. I'm your host, Brian Barney. Here we go. Okay, so I've got Santino live this morning. So Santino, uh, he's a new buddy of mine. I've known you now for a couple years, uh, Santino. He came on the Fly Fishing Podcast, and I'm just super excited to get you on the hunting podcast, as I know you're so passionate about hunting mule deer and elk and hunting with your bow and arrow. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on again, and uh, yeah, always will love to talk uh, hunting with you any any day. So man, it's great. It it just um it amazes me like how many great Western hunters are out there, and and uh, you know I I come across or every once in a while I come across somebody new that I haven't been following, and um, you were one of those guys for me, and so we became friends, and we kind of have a text chain going and uh, check in with each other on hunts and. Um, man, I mean, some of the critters that that came across my text message feed this year just blew my mind. You you have two grown boys that you're able to bow hunt with now, right? Yep. Yeah, Aiden and Jaren. Yeah. So uh, you guys started off season right, but where we really connected was like during um, mule deer season. So uh, uh, tell me about your your mule deer season. I know you had a couple hunts with your boys, and then had some personal hunts, and then I saw you on a bunch of guided hunts as well, but Maybe talk about that hunt with your two boys. Um, man, I know they, they were able to harvest just a couple monster mule deer, and it was right within the same time period. It was just a wild story. Yeah, so uh, I, I've guided for probably over the last decade, you know, off and on, and part of giving guiding up or pulling back on that is pri- all, really primarily just because both my sons are really getting into bow hunting and uh, well, they, they've always been into hunting, but with the bow hunting side, like it just extends the season, right? So for them to be able to get tags and get some great youth tags, uh, I've been very selective on hunts that I do guide on. So this year I did guide uh, mule deer hunters. I had a father son duo for a week and that was great. But the hunt that I was really looking forward to is both my boys have a later season Colorado archery only mule deer tag. And this area that they started hunting, it was a buddy that, um, you know, he turned me on to it. And it, I've been hunting down there for, I would say, just almost 15 years. And I feel like I'm just getting that unit, at least for what it is today, figured out in the last seven years. I, I would say in the last seven years, we've had a lot of success um, in this area that I take my boys down to. So Jaron went. Jaren's my youngest. He's my 15 year old. He went down there last year and shot his first um, shot his first buck, 
with a bow. And uh, he already killed a few bucks with the rifle, so he got his first archery kill down there. And Aiden's had a few. Uh, but this year, like, I think as a guide, there's always scenarios that you hope that could happen to you. They never do because it's usually when you have a client. Uh, but you're like, man, one day I, I, I wish that would happen. And one of the, the things that makes the story incredible was like opening. Well, I mean, it was an opening morning, but it was our first morning hunting. And both the boys are just, it's incredible watching how that they've just paid attention. Like they, they're able to find deer. They're able to find fish, like all the things that like I, I think that I'm like beating my head against the rock sometimes, like they're actually paying attention and listening, which is always awesome. But uh, Aiden had spotted, like it was like first, first light. We had, uh, drove into this one spot. We were going to get out of the truck and then start hiking this um, this dry area where we know a lot of the bucks can be. And we'd seen some does, or I'd seen some does. I was there scouting about a week and a half prior to that and saw a good group of does. So in the rut, it's one of the things that I always just look for the girls and then kind of scout around and see where the bucks are if they're cruising. And it was just a freaking rut frenzy. I think that first light Aiden spots, like just barely on the blue skyline, this buck just trotting and he's already sizing this deer up, which is awesome. Uh, I, I love that he can look at deer and look at the age class and, and, you know, figure out if it's something that he wants to pursue or just kind of see what they're doing. So it's like coffee's still warm. We're sitting in the truck and I'm like, well, you, you just never know that, you know, we could have driven by a ton of bucks and had no idea that they were coming through. So, we're sitting in the truck and I said, man, would you guys probably get your stuff ready? And we're just going to wait here for probably another 20 minutes and then start moving around. So then the sky, like obviously the sun starts rising and it was an overcast day. So what we thought waiting in the truck 20 minutes was almost like 40 before we could even really start to see anything. So, you know, we're, we're with our class scouting from the truck and we start looking around and I just see this big dust cloud about 350 yards away. I'm like, man, that's weird. Like, you know, it's not windy. Um, and I just thought it was one of those little, you know, wind storms or something like that. But then I, I keep looking and all of a sudden I, I just listen and I heard a crack and I'm like, I bet you those are two bucks fighting right now. And I'm like, let's go. So the boys and I just beeline it. It was about 350 yards ish that we ran across. And as soon as we start moving around, like we're, like we're running and stopping, I'm pulling up glass looking and both the boys are ready to rock and roll. And, um, Aiden was actually up the back because Jaron already had killed a buck. Uh, it was a bee licensed buck tag that he had here in Colorado. So he already shot a buck. So technically Aiden was first up the bat and, and have his pick. So we start running up, uh, you know, behind some of these like cedar pinion trees and we're, we're moving around and um, we, we get around, we get around this uh, pinion tree and I, I look over and I just see these legs going back and forth. And I'm like, these are, I, I told Aiden, I said, Hey man, like, these are good bucks. They're locked up, but I, I can tell you right now, they're really, really good deer. He goes, let's do it. And the first thing he tells me, he goes, but Jaron does not have the, he goes, he, he can't shoot as far as me, dad. So why don't you put him in position first? And we start moving around and we get set up and literally these bucks could give, you know, two cares in the world that we're right there. Like I know I, just my, my hunting experience tells me like, they know we're here. They just don't care. Like the bat, like, you can see the hair on their back just standing up and their eyes are all like bloodshot. By this time we have really, really good light and we come around the street and I, I set, I, I set Jaron up and I'm like, it's 38 yards, but just put your 40 yard pin on him and, you know, shoot, shoot which one you want. He goes, I'm going to shoot the one on the left because Aiden was to my right. And so they, they had an agreement, but Jaron draws back, 
and he's waiting because, you know, now they're kind of tiring out, but they're just standing there breathing heavy, pushing back and forth, but there's like barely any movement. So Jaron lets a shot go and just hits this buck perfectly center. Um, you know, for, for me, obviously I'm not going to, uh, you know, it's bow hunting. It is what it is, but he, you know, there was no movement when he let the shot go, it, you know, everything on that was ethical, but it was just, it was a touch back. But then this buck that Jaron hit blood just starts coming out of both sides. And this buck sits down on his butt like a dog, you know, sitting like begging for a treat. And, and Aiden's buck that still has not been shot yet is just driving this deer into the ground because I, it's one of those things that I've seen bucks that even when there's like a, I've seen some films where guys will shoot a deer and if they're rutted up and they're in that fight mode that there'll be a buck that's just still pushing a wounded buck down the hill because he doesn't care. He's trying to kill him. So, uh, anyways, he, this buck feels like he gets momentum and then he gets locked up and he, now he sees us, he realizes something's going on. That buck's starting to, you know, he's dying basically. And he's trying to pull back, pull back. And then Aiden's to my right. And he, I see him draw back and I look back and I Aiden has enough hunting and killing experience where I just, I, I don't have to coach him anymore. And his shot was like 57 yards and he hits this buck perfectly. Like he hit him really tight behind the shoulder. But when he hit him, that buck ended up turning his head, broke away from the other buck. And then he, he ran down the draw about 150 yards and then bedded up. And Jaron's buck was still there. So Jaron, yeah, I, I've taught both my boys like, Hey, you know, you, if you can get another arrow in them, you do it. So he walks up to that, his deer puts one more in it. And then that buck expires within seconds. And then it wasn't even until I think we waited about 25 minutes because we knew that Aiden's deer ran a little bit further. I'm like, you hit him a little low, but I, I'm pretty sure you like clipped his heart. Like, let's just give him a little bit of time. And we went down there and sure enough, we heard like a, we heard like some rocks moving and he was just rolling down the hill dead. So we, we, that to me, <laughs> it, it's so hard to, it's so hard to explain, like to walk up on, on deer, you know, that are going after, like, that's just a cool experience, right? I've done that guiding guys more so with elk. I've come up on elk that are fighting and you just hear their big antlers making all this noise in the dark timber. But to, to hear that more in some like open plains country was really, really cool. And just to be able to get both the boys with, you know, they had, two two really nice mature mule deer down that uh, probably within 200 yards dead of each other within 30 minutes it was just incredible <laughs> what a wild encounter that's like a one in a million to have both boys and both have tags and to lay down both those bucks and both big mature bucks um, yeah. That is absolutely wild, man. You are living the dream, like to have two boys that you <laughs> raised right and not, you know, they come with you for the experience and to spend time with dad, but they've kind of found their own passion in hunting where they love it. And now they've seen the payoff and they're working hard at it. And you know, as well as I do to harvest a mature mule deer with your bow and arrow is so extremely difficult to keep your cool and to make those shots like those boys did, man, you had to be so proud. Like, uh, uh, you, <laughs> you had to just be, uh, brimming with excitement and pride in your boys and to be able to lay down two mature bucks like that, that is just wild, man. Oh, man. well, and you know, it, it, it's like surreal. Obviously there's always tears and stuff. And I think that you know, based on my social and the way I post, like, I think a lot of, some people, uh, you know, that I've heard the term, like, you're an easy guy to hate, like, in joking, it's just because of the, the lifestyle, like, I, I wanted to design my life to be able to do 
what I love to do and what my passion is, but also have my kids involved. And I know that, um, and well, my entire family. And I think that that's something that you don't always get. And that's okay. Like, I'd be okay if I didn't get that. But the fact that I have it now, and I might not get it forever, like they could tire out or they could be one of those things that change. But like the thing that I'm realizing more and more is that like eight and 17 now, and in a year he's going to be stepping out and, you know, leaving the roost and doing, doing his thing. And to me, that is one of the things that like hunting really, it, it, it reminds me of now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm so excited how this hunt played out, but I do love like with Aiden's elk hunt, we were, he was with me for 28 days this year. And I just love the time more than anything. And I, and to, to have a hunt first, first morning and, you know, that happens and it goes down. I wouldn't trade that for anything. Right. But it, you know, then the hunt's done and you know, it's like, all right. So we ended up staying in town just an extra day. We went into town, had it, you know, celebrated with some, some good dinner and, uh, and just laughing and enjoying that moment. But like you said, it was, I don't, it's probably one in, you know, over a million, you know, whatever that to have that scenario, both tags and for both of them to harvest matured, you know, bucks with their, it, it, again, that, that is like the dream. And it was just, uh, I still can't believe, like, when I tell the story, people are just like, no way. But it's just, that that's just the way, you know, it went down, and I, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Man, that's incredible. Um, so you talked about this spot that you've been developing for the last 15 years, uh, and you mm-hmm. actually got a tip from a buddy on this spot. Isn't it wild how these hunting locations, like, I travel to so many different locations, but... You know, I, I almost feel hamstrung just hunting a place my first time the first year because you don't have any go-to spots. And and even when you learn a new area, like it, it seems that you, you add to your knowledge of that area year in, year out, and you learn like where those deer – where they prefer to be and how they move through country and where to, you know, good vantage points where you see them. Like, like that knowledge of being able to hunt an area year after year, that's so key to finding consistent success. Yeah. Like, and I'm weird about this. This is like, this is my obsession with hunting in general is like I have there, like even for fishing, I have a calendar that tells me, okay, like in the last five years, here's the statistics. I, I literally have stats over the last decade of when certain areas have performed. And primarily for me, because I, I really feel that I'd rather be lucky than good any day. And I just, I, I do feel that there's a lot of luck that goes into it. So it's weird. Usually I kill my bulls historically before the 14th of September. All my bulls, I've, I've had very, I think I've only, I've had two, elk um, archery kills that have been at any time after that. And for this specific area, it's usually within this seven day spread. And those are the things that I just, I, you know, some people think it's weird or, or whatever the case is. I don't, I don't pay too much attention to like moon phase and all that. Like that's not my thing, but I, I always follow a calendar of when we've had the most success and most rut activity, even if we don't harvest, like just when we see bucks that are doing what they're doing. And like to give you an idea, when we were breaking down Aiden's, Aiden's buck was the furthest um, that we had to pack out. It wasn't a hard pack out, but we, you know, he broke him down, threw him in his pack. And that right there is also really cool to see my sons doing that part now. Like they're, they're doing the process and dad is just, you know, sitting there with a big smile on his face. But um, there were bucks running around us for over, well, I would say for the entire pack out, like we'd come out and see a buck, you know, a couple hundred yards away that was working his way over and, you know, there definitely had to be a doe that just went in the heat because it was just probably saw seven or eight bucks that morning. 
including the two that they killed. So it's just when I when I look at that, it's like, okay, I'm going to note this day, this time, and know that, you know, we'll just see what it looks like if, if somebody draws that tag again next year. But it's one of those things that we just, you know, it, that I pay attention to all. It's all the little things, in my opinion, that helps you become even more successful because then you can just start, again, like fishing. We just got back from a fishing trip a few days ago, and because of our calendar, we switched it up. We went a little bit later, but we had an amazing time catching really, really nice fish. And it just, uh, yeah, it's, it's all those little things that I, I try to do to make those moments a little bit more successful, if you will. You bring up such a good point, Santino, the the timing of hunting locations, and that goes for elk or for deer, is there's timing to these spots. You could go in the best spot in the world, but if your timing's off, you don't see a buck in there, and it just um, it, it brings it to the forefront of my mind, like the areas that I hunt, and I love – that epic rutting action that you're talking about with bucks everywhere, yeah. you know, I find uh, that same in in my hunting. Like this year, the buck I killed, you know, I think I stalked three bucks that morning and saw, you know, seven, eight bucks and the rut just went off. But you're so right as the timing of a location. So my mm-hmm. deer spots, I have a spot that actually hunts really good. October, right in the first few days in November, and it's almost like a staging ground for these bucks. And they're they're starting to move for does, but some of them are bachelor herded up. But this is like where they stage for the rut. And now I can go back to this spot in November 10th, and the bucks have already left this area. They're no longer in this area. They've moved on, you know. And so like November 10th, then I have to hunt a new area that that's like a rut ground. And like you said, where there's – you know, a couple different drainages and there's 50 does in each of these big drainages and these bucks just frequent through there. And then that's where I ended up killing my buck. But if I go to that spot in the first of November, you know, I'll only see small bucks there. So I just think it's so important that point you made about timing and, and like, you know, to switch gears to elk hunting, like elk are so nomadic and they move through country and it's about knowing a bunch of good elk spots and then heat checking those spots for when those elk are in there. But I know when I first started uh, hunting elk, I had a calendar, like you say, that second week it was good in this area. Third week it was good in this area. Fourth week, you know, it was good in this area. And then post-rut, when they get in the big groups, they come out in these areas. Uh Or if I get a big snowstorm, like I think it's so important that point you made about timing and really writing down the dates. And and I have found that those dates – Dates can, you know, for the most part, they're fairly spot on, but they can shift a few days one way or another. Do you find that as well with your spots? Oh, sure. Yeah. Like the date thing, I, I, I don't try to, I don't want anyone to hear me wrong. I don't, it's not that it works out on the same day or the same time, but I would say that there's about a week buffer within a certain day. So I find like, okay, out of, you know, most of my bulls I've killed primarily between like the 7th and the 11th of September in that range, like that's when I kill my, my bulls historically. So with that, it doesn't mean that if I go out on the seventh, I'm just making sure that I'm in the field at that time, because I know for me and the success that I've had, that's when it happens for me. And I know guys that are a week later than me or whatever it is. And it it just, it's always interesting on how that works out. Like it's, it's, I don't know. It's something that I can't even explain other than I just pay attention to it. And it, you know, we, we have a lot of success doing that. 
Yeah, uh, same here. And it's just fun to compare notes with somebody that thinks that same way of that that timing. And what's interesting is is that uh, you like those early season pre-rut or I guess it, um, you know, and it's different in different, you know, areas as far as, um, you know, uh, uh you know, where you sit is, is farther south than where I hunt. But, you know, the majority of my bulls I kill in October uh, up here in Montana, right. which is wild. You know, this year I killed one right at the end of September, and I did kill one the third week of September as well in a different state. But uh, that's wild that a lot of your success comes early. Do you think um, that's because the elk, you you find the, the elk – uh, are not spooked out or condensed in an area during that time of year? Or do you think that your tactics favor that early season kind of pre-rut when those bulls are looking for cows? Or if you had to put your thumb on on it, what would you say your key to success is for that time of year? Well, so the, it's a tough, that's a tough question because, like, that has been true for me in Utah and in New Mexico in completely different environments where I've, I've just harvested bulls. So I would, I would chalk that up to luck, but for my Colorado spot, like the elk that I'm hunting are usually up, up really high, like above timberline and they're staging from their summer area to like, I would call like the rut area, which is not far from timberline. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of guys that are killing bulls really, really, you know, up high and right at that timberline mark, I try to get them like where they are just staging and they're starting to work their way down. And one of the areas that I hunt down below, uh, right around 7,500 feet, like there's a ton of private that starts to happen. And there's a lot more, there's a few pockets of public that a lot of people that just, you know, they get off the dirt road and then they just kind of hike up these drainages and they just, they drainage day hunt basically. So I try to stay, up in a certain area early enough to where when those guys are doing that, they're actually bumping those bulls back up to me or they're moving the elk up to me where those elk are like, yeah, I don't know. We're ready because there, there does come a turning point in the area that I hunt. That's my OTC spot. That as soon as like the 17th or the 15th, the middle of the month, when we're halfway through it, regardless of what the weather's doing, that there's just so much pressure at that point that those bulls know that they have to go into the private. And I used to guide in some of the private, um, that, I hunt not far from and we as guides like those last two weeks for us were primo because we we had enough pressure from the public guys that we knew that there were, the last two weeks were just going to be money like that we, we would see mature bulls but the thing that i've tried to learn from some of these guys like in utah like um like ryan carter's of the world and you know ryan's a good friend he just like i i admire like the, he literally treats elk hunting like whitetail hunting and for me that's always like when I, when I see guys that are constantly getting it done, I always ask what their tactics are and how they think about it. And, you know, a lot of these guys will sit water holes and they, and that's not necessarily my jam. I will do that to shoot a mature bull, but I, I also am just really passionate about bulls coming in scream. You don't know what they're going to be until they're within, you know, bow range and seeing, you know, what kind of bull it's going to look like. And I just, I really, really love that. And what I'm starting to realize through like raking and a lot of, uh, I would just call it like post rut, you know, or tactics that I try to use, I, I just get way more cooler encounters, almost like scary ones where you'll, you'll be there and you'll just be raking. All of a sudden you just hear like an elk blow, you know, like a horse, just like a, and they blow. And then you look back and you're like, oh shit, there's a bull right there. You would never even get that. He would, you, you never even heard him come in with, you know, everything that he has on his head, they just, 
I love that part about that transition time. And I think I get a lot more out of that early season than I do on the second season, because at that point they're cowed up and they're doing their, you know, they're, they're doing their rut thing. And it's just, it makes it more difficult to get a mature bull that way too. That makes sense. It's such a, those are such thrilling encounters that has to be the most exciting way to hunt them. Um, I think you bring up a good point at capitalizing when the elk are in an area or when you find them. Um, and it's the same thing here in these Montana mountains. Like all the elk are up in the mountains and up high at first. And like the way you describe your scenario, the bulls bachelor up and they're up, you know, above tree line or at tree line. They're way up high and they summer up there. And then just about that time in September, the first two weeks there, they start to transition and come down and they're starting to stage for the rut. They're even starting some rutting activity uh but but they're not all cowed up yet and so they're kind of looking around and they come down to that 7500 foot range and same thing here and then like if you wait too long around here the third or fourth week or i'd say fourth week or first week of october a lot of these bulls um the feed starts burning off up high and they start coming down onto the private where they're tougher to get to and now there's still some locations where they come down and it's still public and can be really good hunting but i just think you bring up such an important part or important important point of um capitalizing when you're on those elk and in that area because you know you like to harvest a lot of your elk in that second week of september and if you kind of hold out or you don't capitalize on that time frame, the later it gets in the season, the farther those elk get down on private and 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 really lessens your chances of harvesting a bull. So I think it's important to capitalize on their on those elk, uh, you know, when they're in an area where you can hunt them or where you do have them located or where you are dialed on that timing. I think that's so important. Well, and that's that's another thing I think for any anyone that is listening to this specific episode, it's. You know, when when you start talking with people that would have or that you could define as being successful hunters, like somebody like you, Brian, that, you know, the conversation is just different, right? Like there's a lot of people that I talk to and the conversations, like I'm just trying to find elk, but I was there too. Like, and that was something, and I'm sure you were as well. Like you all start somewhere and like having conversations with like you and, and you know, two guys that have been doing it. And this is, this is like what you do for a living. Um, and this is a huge part of your life. It's it just, it's in your DNA, those conversations over time, you know, the hope is, is that they transition from, you know, just trying to find elk to like, okay, I know I'm going to be in them and then just trying to capitalize and all that kind of stuff. Because, you, you know, I, I just think that the, the level of experience and encounters does grow with time. And people always ask me like, well, what's your, what's your key? And this is like one of the quotes that I always give my boys is that success is when preparation meets opportunity and you have to be prepared. You have to be doing the things like when the elk move, there's been several nights where we're, you know, we're moving a spike camp and we're hearing them bugle and they're, they're, you know that they're moving. They're just not running around like they're going a completely different direction. And if those are the only elk that are in town, uh, as long as you have access or you're in a place that, that there's enough public for which for us there is when we're up high, we just follow those elk. Like we will literally follow them and try to get on them first light to do everything that we have to do because it is a window of opportunity that closes and closes because what the way you'd hunt them in second or third rifle season, it's a whole different ball game uh, as opposed to getting, getting them before, uh, you know, they, before they start running and they go into that, that whole deal. Yeah. You have such a good understanding of it. It is like those two key components 
uh, is what it comes down to, to consistently harvesting elk, is to put yourself in elk time and time again, to be in them. And, and it comes from instincts and experience and building that skill set and knowing how to locate them, also building knowledge in an area. But if you can keep into elk and keep putting yourself into elk, you're going to create opportunities. And then the second mm-hmm. part of that is exactly like you mentioned – is being able to capitalize on those opportunities. When you locate a bull, whether you know that's through the binos or, or you hear them bugle, you know you have to make a hundred right decisions to to get an opportunity at that bull. And whether that's chasing them up, up on the mountainside, like like you describe, keeping with elk, coyoting them, trying to follow them to their bed, and, and then not blowing them out of country too. Like there's this there's this dance of of, of getting into elk. And also not spooking them out of the country because once you spook them, elk go for miles. And so you're trying to – it's like this delicate dance because elk, they're not like mule deer where you can make this methodical planned out stock or approach that you've thought of everything and you're going to creep in. Now, sometimes it works out that way if you can bed a bull or something of that nature. But the majority of times, elk hunting, it's aggressive. And it's one of the reasons why I like it is to kill an elk, you got to go get into elk. You see a big six-point bowl, you can't sit back and theorize how you're going to make it perfect and how you're going to do this and how you're going to cut them off. Like for me, I just got to go over there and go get into them, and then I rely upon my instincts from there. And my instincts will keep me safe from being picked out from cows because I know – the, the pace I need. I know when I need to slow down when I'm getting close to the herd, and I I don't stalk recklessly. Like I I want to see those cows before they see me, see those elk before they see me, and I don't want to push this stock to failure. I want to shadow this herd or coyote this herd and stay with them until I see that opportunity to close in when I'm in striking distance. And so, like I think it's one of the reasons like that we that we fall in love with elk hunting. You know, is is those two key skill sets that it takes to go get into them and then it's like this aggressive hunt where you have to rely upon seeing them first or making the right moves or when to approach and when to hold back there's there's all these micro decisions or nuances to that to that stock and and the the better you get at hunting and the 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 better you build your hunting skill like the the more you can rely upon those instincts and and then you know the more you capitalize on those opportunities so yeah the two key components to hunting elk finding yeah. and staying in elk and then capitalizing on those opportunities yep yeah that that's 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 really one of the biggest things that again you know we talk about it's it's time it's a lot of time like one of the things that was very consistent across the board. I wouldn't even just say in Colorado, but like I, I have buddies that were hunting New Mexico and uh, like Utah. And with COVID happening, the I think camper sales was, I heard some crazy number, like over 350% up. Wow. And uh, yeah, like hiking, camping, you know, tent sales, all this stuff. So I'm, I'm where I'm going with that is that there were so many more people in the mountains hiking around and, my first few weeks of, well, I drew a coveted tag this past year, but even the guys that were hunting, my buddies that we, we hunt the same area or within a, a certain vicinity, they had the hardest time finding elk in the first week or two because they, it almost like needed to calm down after Labor Day. And it just, it was one of those things that it was just, it was wild because I think that so many people were getting out and exploring more, going more miles in into, you know, I'm talking about people that probably do not hunt. And they're just out there backpacking, which is all great and fine. But 
it did shift things around, in my opinion, on, you know, some of the areas that people were that thought, no, no one's going to be back here. But there were a lot more people in areas that you would least expect because they just they were exploring and they were they were out enjoying the outdoors. So I think my opinion was is that it pushed everything back about a week and a half. Because first rifle season, when my youngest son went out, he shot a, he shot his first bull this year, uh, first rifle season, and it was incredible. It literally, like, even we went up three or four, well, four days before the season started and scouted, and the elk were, it was every morning you just could get up and just listen to elk bugling. It was, it was the rut fest, and it was about a week, yeah, a week and a half after archery season ended. So, that's one of the things that I, I just think that people, it, it, it's just what happened with, uh, you know, more people. It, it's just a result of what happened with more people being in the woods. Yeah, we saw it this year up where we're at. A lot more guys hunting, a lot more hunting pressure, and people just had the time. They had the time off work to go. We're normally in the middle of the week. You kind of have it to yourself. But, uh, yeah, the woods were a, a little bit more crowded for sure. But, you know, and that's what it takes. Like being an elk hunter is – to constantly be theorizing and coming up with theories uh, of where these elk are, where they've gone. And no matter what amount of hunting pressure is in a unit, there's all still those same amount of elk in there. And elk just have a tendency to be where pressure is not. Like when you can find, you know, whenever I find elk, it's usually there's nobody around hunting them. They found a little pocket or a little spot where they're not getting pressured. And so like our job as hunters is to keep theorizing and keep going. And actually I had a, you know, I had a tough season in my home state of Montana where, you know, I went to an area that I've hunted probably seven years or so. And I've got all these spots that I've developed over the years. And so I'd go in and I'd heat check these spots. And by heat checking, you know, elk hunting for me, elk are really nomadic. And so what I find works best for me is I hike into a drainage or a basin and first or last light, you know, I'll listen for bugles. I'll, I'll even get in there earlier, stay in late and listen for a rut party. But I'm just trying to locate elk. And so I hike into these drainages, um, glass it, I listen, I look for elk. If I find elk, you know, elk like to be around other elk. Usually if I find a six-point bull with a group of cows, that's not the only elk in there. There may be multiple groups of elk and a whole party going on, and so that's what I'm looking for. And in Montana this year, I I heat-checked a handful of my spots, and I hadn't come up with an elk, which is really rare for me. And so, like, I had to keep adapting, and so I had some locations that I had never been that – you know, I figured we're real remote country and, and sure enough yeah. ended up, you know, finding one of the, finding a great big bull in there. And then, um, you know, just like we talked about capitalizing on that opportunity and I hunted him for two days and the elk herd never knew I was after him. And finally I got that opportunity where I had the wind right and they rounded a corner and I knew I could cut him off and, and, and got there and made it happen. But I think with elk hunting, they can be no, so nomadic that it can be frustrating. And, and even though we talk about timing, that hunting pressure can affect it. I know even the weather patterns or if it's a dry summer, it'll affect where the feed is or uh, how much water is available. Like there's there's so many of these factors that go on. But as hunters, we just got to keep theorizing and keep putting forth the effort. And eventually we'll turn up an opportunity. Yep. Yeah, and that and and that is exactly it. Uh, I, again, I mentioned earlier I drew a coveted tag here in Colorado, so I went down to an area that a buddy had. Um, it was the Bosque de Oso, so I think in Colorado that takes around 11, 11 points or ten to eleven. You can draw it 
And I think for non-resident, it can be up in that 16 to 18. And it was a, it was a very challenging unit because the bulls were still bachelored up. It was a, it, the, the rut just came way later and the Bosque is surrounded by the Hartice ranch, the Hill ranch, um, that a lot of guys from, you know, Primos and there's, a lot of it, like the Hill Ranch is known all across the country, and then there's uh, what's it? It's a Vermejo Ranch, so that's uh, one of Ted uh, Ted Turner's places, and he owns on the Colorado and New Mexico side. So it it is the land of really big elk. It's just it was a very challenging year because one of the drainages we had, Aiden and I, he went up with me and we pre scouted. We had 14 bulls in one drainage, and all it took was some, you know, just inexperience and that whole, uh, I, I, I kick myself. I'm blaming me that whole idea of, Hey, don't talk to anybody in camp. Don't, don't say anything like where you found the bulls. And that was that I, I felt so dumb, and, but also trying to honor the guy that told me to put in for this spot. But literally first morning by six, I think it was like six seventeen AM. Like it was like sunlight was just coming up. You could hear bulls milling around. Yeah, uh, we had some guys come in and they came in through the bottom, like the gut of the drainage. And it was two guys that teamed up together that drew that tag, and they blew every single one of those fourteen bulls out of that drainage by six, like within ten minutes. It was like not even six thirty, and all those bulls ran up, jumped over the fence of the hill ranch, and they, these bulls were running like they had just been shot at uh, numerous times, which no bulls had been shot at, but they just were so spooked. But it was the one water source within several miles, which after that first opening morning, I didn't see an elk for 10 days. The next elk I, I saw was one of the bulls that, or it was the bull that I ended up taking. And again, they were like in a bachelor group. But it, those were, that in between that, those 10 days were very, very long. <laughs> a oh lot of miles. Like it was, you know, we were averaging. So this area in the Bosque, there's one, there's two camp spots, but everyone usually camps at the, I guess it would be the east campsite. So this year there was only five archery tags um, let out, and then there was five muzzleloader tags let out, and then five bear tags. So you have 15 guys, or I'm sorry, um, well, in certain parts of the season when muzzleloader starts, you have 15 guys in that unit, but then you also have five mule deer tags. So now you have 20 guys potentially at, at the worst where it's the most crowded, and that just made it even more challenging. But... Again, I ended up taking a great bull. He never heard a bugle in that unit once, uh, but I got two arrows in a bull that basically I had to wait. There we, Colorado, I think, I'm not sure if Montana got hit, but we got all hit with like a snowstorm at the very beginning. I think it was like the 7th of September or the 8th. Like it got really, really cold and it snowed down here. And uh, it was awesome because then you could see tracks, but we weren't seeing a lot of cows, which is always a nerve-wracking thing. Um, if you're not seeing cows and you know, when they start rutting, they're going to go wherever the cows are. And if that's not, if, you, if you're on a place that there's not a lot of cows, which there isn't, um, it makes it really, really challenging to try to intercept a bull or pull him up, pull him from, you know, a bull that's already in a herd of cows. Like he's not going to come if, if he already has a bunch of girls, as you know. So, uh, it, it, it turned in, you know, there were some ups and downs, but there was a lot, a lot of miles that that ended up uh, paying off because when the sun finally came out and it started melting everything off, I started again, transition. I'm like, there, there's some amazing South facing slopes here. There's going to be some bulls that come out hopefully in the next day or two, just to sunbathe because it had been so cold. And sure enough, that first evening I came up and I found like five bulls sitting on a South facing slope 
just doing their thing, milling around, eating, and I saw a really nice bull, and ended up took me about two and a half hours to get on them, and you know, I, I got within my first shot was right around like that. I, I would say 15 yards, sub 15 yards. It was, it was close enough where I was it's like, okay, top 10, we're good. And, uh, I ended up having to do the old throw a rock thing because the wind was blowing around and swirling. And this bull literally, I, how I heard him is I thought it's like he snored or he grunted because he was in his bed sleeping. So when I threw the rock, he stood up and I think it was very similar to how when we wake up, like if somebody suddenly woke you up, you just kind of stand up like what's going on. And when he stood up, I had a little window put an arrow in him and then I could just hear blood pouring out hitting the rocks that he was standing on he walked three yards and I just again just muscle memory reloaded another arrow drew back and I saw that that first shot was really good but I hit him again and he went maybe five yards and then just went back to bed and you know he expired real quick <laughs> and, oh. like, but it's it, it's that tenacity when you get thrown like it, it, it really everybody was kind of having the uh, hunting blues I think out of the muzzleloader guys, the archery guys, and even first rifle guys that drew that tag. And you're talking muzzleloader and rifle, those points are in the teens, like 16, 18 points for that unit. Didn't even see or take an elk. I was the only guy that shot a bull in there. And that's not to boast like I, on me. I'm just, I, I couldn't imagine. I put, I, I burned 11 points on that unit. I couldn't imagine the guys that had 15 to 18 points and didn't even see or hear a bull bugle like that just broke my heart for some of those guys because they're a lot of those guys are older and they'll never be able to draw anything like that again oh that's crushing um mm -hmm. good on you but a testament to you know you, your um uh, effort that you kept putting in day in day out hiking those miles and then you're theorizing a glassing those south slopes you know after that snowstorm and figuring out where those elk had been and where they went you know that tenacity and determination is really what turned the tides for you but even drawing a coveted premium tag does not guarantee a big bull it does not guarantee any bull or even good hunting and you know, i've been fortunate right. to draw some decent tags in my life and i don't know you know like, like I hope I got some more premium ones to come, but a lot of hunting these premium units, I don't think you can just sit by and wait until you draw a premium unit and think you're going to go kill your great big 375 bull or whatever the case is. Like, I think we need to build our hunting skill in these over-the-counter units, these easy-to-draw units, and be hunting elk each and every year and be facing those same challenges each and every year and, and have to come up with solutions, have to keep putting forth effort, you know, trying to figure it out. Because when we do draw one of these coveted tags, um, you know, we don't just show up and the elk die and a great big six point comes out broadside like you got to hunt. You got to go for it. And there's no guarantees on these good tags that, that you're going to even find epic hunting. And so you have to have your skill set to a level where you're proficient in, in different types of terrain and you're, you're comfortable not finding elk and you know what the next move is and, and, and you keep that mental side sharp. There's so much that goes into it. But I, I think for guys that love to hunt elk. I think you have to find a way to hunt them each and every season so you get your skill set level to a point to where you can be successful when you do draw one of those coveted tags, just like you did. Yeah, and that's the one of the guys that um, started me out with guiding and was definitely a mentor and really sharp in my elk bow hunting skills. Uh, and I put it that way because like he, he would always say the same thing because I, I probably asked too many questions. <laughs> he was like... <laughs> Because at the end of the day, you just have to let the elk teach you. And what he's saying is you have to be an elk. You have to watch them. You have to know 
like, you know, the biology and everything that they do just because that's the norm. And when the rut comes, we all know that's not the norm, but you have to give yourself every tool that you can in your bag to be able to make your instincts even that much more sharpened. And, and like w- w- exactly what you were saying, like, I, I feel like, you know, it'd be fun to hunt with you, but I don't even like when I go in on a, uh, on a stock or it's like, okay, this might happen. It is so instinctual and I'm just watching everything. I'm trying to do everything right. But even when I've done things wrong, it still can pan out. And like you said, yes, if you draw, if the only point of me bringing that up is that like I hunted my freaking butt off and miles and miles, I don't, I think by the end of the season, while again, we, Aiden and I went and continued our hunt for Aiden shot his first archery bull. And, uh, that was like, we, we put in hundreds of miles, like just in down in that coveted area. And again, that area can produce, but it was a, it was a dry year. Uh, a lot of the bulls that we did see, they were great. Like they were nice big bulls, but they also, you know, didn't finish off. And there was, there was already so many things that, uh, that start stacking up against you. And it's kind of like the old saying, like, you know, you're never going to beat the mountain. The mountain's always going to win. So you just have to adjust. And I think the biggest thing is it's just so mental. It is, it is so mental. One of my buddies, I don't know if you follow him. His name's Clint Whiting. He drew a nice, uh, a coveted tag this year as well. Um, I think it was like five points or something like that. So he, he waited and he went into an area and literally was seconds away from packing up his camp. I think he'd been in the backcountry hunting solo for like 12 days. So that's a long time just by yourself. And he was ready to hike back to his truck and he starts packing up camp. And all of a sudden here's a bull whistle around, I don't know, 10, 15 or something like that. It was later. And then before you know it, within an hour, he had a dead bull. (laughs) And that's cool. But that's just, that is hunting. Like for me, I went into this area feeling like, okay, I'm going to see bulls at least every two days. Like I'm going to get into them. And like my public land spot, when I took Aiden, he, Aiden got an OTC tag and we went in there and like, Every day we were in there, we saw, I have way more rod activity, way more bulls that I was seeing in my public land spot than I did in an area that took me 11 points to draw. And to your point is there are no guarantees. It's really, but the other thing is I've been hunting this area for about 14 years. So I, I can, I can walk it without a headlamp. I know exactly every little drainage because I have so many hours and days of my life in this area that I hunt. Yeah, hunting a spot like that gives you confidence too. When you have so much experience in there, you 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 kind of you've been thrown a lot of the curveballs and overcome them before, and you just know where a lot of the elk hang out. And it seems to just give me more confidence, like knowing an area like that. But yeah, you couldn't be more spot on. You got to tell me um, about Aiden's uh, elk hunt. You, I think you said twenty eight days you spent and. It is so extremely difficult with a bow and arrow. That's why I'm just so impressed. And I really like your oldest son, Aiden. I uh, I had him on the fly fishing podcast. He's just a great young man. But uh, tell me a Thank little you. bit about your guys' mm-hmm. elk hunt and just the the drive and tenacity. Like That's what it takes day in, day out of just grinding. 28 days is a long elk season. Yeah. So Aiden hunted with me at the Bosque just being my right-hand guy. And he wanted, you know, he was taking photos and doing all that kind of stuff and then helping call. And uh, he had to go home uh, for two days so he could, uh, they had something with school that was kind of opening up with COVID. So he had to go home and we ended up, or his mom, uh, my wife, Cassandra, came down and picked him up. He went to school for like two days and Murphy's Law, that's when I shot my bull. So uh, my came home and 
got everything situated, got the bull to the meat processor and all that because I knew as, as soon as he congratulated me on my bull and was asking me about the story, he was so bummed because he wanted to be there for that moment and help with the pack out. He just said, well, hey, I don't want to be selfish, but like, can we go Can we go on my elk hunt? And I was like, sure. I'm going to get your stuff. Let's go. And one of the nice things about the area that, that we or the way that we were going to hunt it is I was going to bring my camper and there's an area that we can get into Wi-Fi. So I, I've really just it, it tears me up, but if I can go into a spot, hunt the morning, hike out, and just do these, like, you know, in and outs, and then get to our, get to base camp and just have time so he can do school, that's primarily what we focused on because I think he, he had to do, like, check-in online for school, like, three days a week. So that's the way that we were going to go out and hunt this week. That way he didn't technically have to be out of school, and that's honestly one of the biggest things I did enjoy about uh, the situation that we were in with COVID because it just allowed him to do school from hunting base camp. So the, basically we went in for five days and we hunted, uh, it was like 13 for eight and full. And we, we didn't quit. We, <laughs> in, and in that time we had Clint called us, I think on the second or third day of Aiden's hunt, we were in the elk and uh, Clint's one of my really, really near and dear friends and he got a bull down. So we packed up drove a few hours to his area to go pick up and help him pack out his bull. And one of the guys that ended up helping pack out who was kind of like, and this is what I love about hunting. There was just guys that were willing, but part of the trade-off is they said, Hey, can you kind of point us in the right direction? And these guys weren't going to be hunting too far from us. So I put them in a drainage that I hadn't even hunted in probably five or six years. Second day, our buddy John shoots his first archery elk bull. <laughs> oh, wow. So then Aiden and I go in. And that, to me, honestly, Brian, was probably, I was frustrated. I, I was not not with anything, not with the guys that killed bulls. I just, it, I, I, I'm very protective of the time that I have with Aiden. And I just, you know, it, it, it was almost like that sense, and I'm just being fully transparent. It was, it was that sense of selfishness where I was like, ah, oh, man, I don't want to go help pack out another bull because we're on elk right now. And I dealt with that with Clint's. But as soon as, I saw Aiden and I said, and I told him, I said, Hey, Clint got a bull down. Aiden's first responsible. Well, let's go. Let's go help him. I'm like, well, he's like three hours away. He goes, let's go. So we got in the truck and did that. And to have it, that was Aiden's first real pack out. Uh, Cause we were, I don't know, it was about five miles in that, you know, Clint's a mountain goat. So we were about five miles in and we, we packed it all out in one trip. And I'll tell you right now that right there just changed the game for him having like a real archery season with him helping me out. And then going and packing out other guys' elks, and and then, so uh, it was. I think it was the second to last day. He was starting to get tired. So Aiden and I, you know, we've been on this crazy week. It's like ten days. Mom's calling. So like, Are you guys good? I'm like, yeah. I'm, we're not. We're not leaving until Aiden wants to be done. We're not going to hang it up until he says, all right, I, I I had enough. But I kept reminding Aiden, like, listen, you can be done whenever you want to be done. I know it's hard, and this is just way different than what we've done in the past. However, um you will be thinking about this moment like all the way up until next year. And to give you an idea in 12 days, aside from helping two other friends pack out elk, Aiden had one close encounter with within 30 yards. It's just, he couldn't thread the needle. It was, it was in dark timber. I called a bull up. So he already had several encounters with elk and got close and he didn't even care. He was willing to shoot a cow, which in Colorado, it's a either sex um, over the counter archery tag. So he was, he just really wanted to meet. Well, it was the second to last day where I, I had this conversation with him, and he just said, no, let's, we're going to go to the end. And I said, okay. So it's the last day, and I said, it's not over till it's over. And it was the evening. Um, 
we had seen some elk and we were getting close and we're just sitting on this ridge top and we're you know cracking jokes and I think in, in that much time, you just get to know somebody, even if it's not your son, if it's just your hunting partner, you get to a certain point where, you know, you're just seeing a whole different side of them. And, you, you know, you're learning more about somebody that, you know, you live with every day, which is really cool. But we started hiking out and I said, man, let's just check this one drainage one more time. Cause I said, I, I knew these cows had went into this, this drainage the day before and we never saw them pop out. So we just, he said, all right, let's do it. So we went up there and I kid you not, like, we went probably 250 yards and just, I, I said, well, I'm going to just get to the top of this hill and look up where I could see the saddle of the strangers because they usually come out to feed and there's a creek that they'll come down and drink from. And sure enough, I saw legs and I get my binos and I see elk, cow, 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 and they're working their way right down to us. And the, you know, everything was right. The wind was right. So I just get Aiden set up and calling wasn't really working. They were pretty quiet. And I end up getting him set up, but then I drop about 150 yards below him, which is really, really far to even try to call. But I figured, you know, worst case, if that bull goes off or I hit a cow mew, it's going to be far enough where it's not going to blow him, blow him out. And one of the things that we were dealing with is anytime in all the other encounters that we had, I felt like there was a, if we were within 100 yards and we cow call, they, they just, they would go the other direction. Like they just had, they had lost interest. It was just weird. Um, or I just suck at calling, which I don't think that <laughs> maybe it was, maybe it was that way this year. But, uh, anyway, so I see Aiden like, and I see cows, 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 and I see him draw back and he's letting all these cows pass him. And I see the tips of these antlers. I'm like, okay, there's a bull. And it was a great bull. And all of a sudden I, I can't even see the bull and I can just see Aiden at full draw and I can just see the top of his head and I can just barely see his bow and his arrow. And then I just, boom, he, he lets that arrow go. And then I hear a whack. And I'm like, okay, he hit him. And then that bull ran right past Aiden and ran about 40 yards in front of me and then just went down into this dark timber. And I said, I just couldn't believe it. And I'm just getting all choked up. And Aiden's looking. I'm just putting my hand up, like, don't run down. Just just stay up there. We're not going to move. We're not going to do anything. And uh, we gave it about 30 minutes, heard a crash. And Aiden, his lost, I think it was two years ago when I took him rifle hunting, he lost the bull. Uh, that we, we just, we never found. And that's just part of hunting, whether you want to believe it or not, it, it just can be. And with archery even more so. So I just said, you know what, let's, let's just back out of here. Let's go make a, a mountain house. Let's just, you know, cook some dinner up. And he goes, really? I said, yeah, we, we need to, like, we, I just, I want to just wait. And then I, while we were eating, we heard another big crash and I was like, I'm happy we waited. I said, I think he's done now. Uh, so we, I think it was probably almost an hour and a half that we waited and then we finally went down and he was probably 80, 80 some yards just down on this log. And I think what happened was, is that we heard that crash and he sat into that and then he just like threw himself over. And that's what, that was the second crash that we heard. So it ended up being a really, really, really fun hunt to see him, you know, arrow his first bull, uh, with a bow. Uh, well, I, it's not his first bull, but it's his first archery bull. And just to, just to have that moment in so many days and, you know, from, being in Southern Colorado to being to our hunting spot, helping out guys pack out elk. And I just, I, I looked at him and I said, you couldn't have had a better season, uh, especially for your real first archery one. Cause he's gone with me a few times archery hunting, but it's just like a weekend warrior trip. It's, it's, it's nowhere near where we're just basically living out there and we're not, we're not even going home for a few days. We were just out there. And to me, that was, that was probably, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever get another season like that with them. Um, in the sense of like, we're, 
you know, it'll never be the same, I guess is the way to put it. Cause he's growing up and all that kind of stuff. But it, it, it was just, I'm so happy that I could have that with him and uh, looking forward to that with Jaron this year. That is incredible. God, what a great story. What uh, yeah, what man, great time with, with Aiden and, and to watch him capitalize like that. And how many great life lessons that, that you've shown him and introduced him to, to hunting in, in its purest form and in, and to give him those experiences in a season, it's just amazing. And I, I just love how quick things can turn around. And the more you hunt, the more you realize that it can change in just a few seconds and all come together. Like like Aiden on the very last day and checking that last drainage and then you know having that bull come by and then him doing right and capitalizing on his opportunity. Or your other buddy that was 12 days in, ready to pack up and leave camp, and all of a sudden within, you know, uh, 30 minutes the whole hunt everything changes like all you need is is like a a sliver of opportunity and so one once you prove to yourself that that can be done or things can change around you just walk around with that mindset all the time of, hey this can change in a drop of a hat or like your season like not seeing an elk for 10 days but still believing in it like you've seen that payoff of a hunt and you know how good it feels to put your all into it and to come out on top and so you know, you're willing to walk through broken glass to get that feeling again. And and I'm the same way. Like you, you learn the payoff and then you just continue to believe in it, that it can all come together in seconds. And, and, and sometimes it doesn't. And, and yours and, and Aiden hunt, Aiden's hunt, like, man, it was, it was down to the last day. It, it very easily could have turned out where he ate his tag and still had a good season and all these experiences, but you guys kept your head in the game and then all of a sudden made it happen, you know, in the in the bottom of the ninth. That's just an, an incredible sure. story and just a, a incredible experience that you get to share with your son. Man, it's just so amazing. Uh, I'm just so impressed by you guys. That that is just great. Well, and that's I think there's kind of you know there's a lot of stuff that goes out there, uh, you know, into the world and like on social media, and it's kind of like you know must be nice and all these all these different things of. of you know, how you could do it. And I think what people tend to overlook is like, I told you just in that one area down, uh, down where my boys shot their mule deer. Now I got 15 years down there. And if you add the time and the hours, I probably couldn't do it. And I, I would be off. I'd be, I'd miss the mark on how many real hours and stuff I have down there. But that's, you know, in life, we all have choices and we, we decide what we, what we need to do. But when I, when I came into the hunting industry or, or in world, I just, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know how my, and I'm still navigating all that and trying to figure it out. But what I do know is that as long as I can, this is going to be something that I do for the rest of my life or until I physically can't do it. And for some people, uh, it's, you know, I, I've guided these guys. They, 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 they envy the lifestyle, but they probably wouldn't ever do it because, you know, they're doing whatever they have to do. And that's why they can go spend five to 10 or whatever thousands of dollars for a guided hunt. And for them, that to me, I just think, you know, I, I, I guarantee I have at least, if not more than that, just in time invested into a season every year. But it's it, for me, it's just hunting has just become so much bigger than uh, it really. So like my mother-in-law, she asked me this the other day, she goes, you know, because you know, we have faith and she just, she just said, you know, do, you know, do you feel like you're like connected with God or like, it, it, or, you know, a lot of people say, well, the outdoors is my church and all that kind of stuff. And for me, I just, I don't know how to expl explain it other than when I'm in the outdoors and I have that much time and then to do it with Aiden, I just feel whole. And I feel like, you know, th 
without a doubt, if, if there's any question, like, it's like, this is what I was created to do. And, uh, like that is just something that I've like sat in more with, with, with a lot more confidence over the last few years, just because it's just, you know, having a bow in my hand, like, don't get me wrong. I'll go on a rifle hunt. I don't mind it. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I just, I love bow hunting and that's something that is, uh, I'm going to, continue and try to do that as long as I can. And I'm going to try to do that as long as I can with my kids or even new people. We took out a few guys that were not new to hunting, but new, newer to bow hunting and hadn't had success. And, uh, you know, they shot some incredible mule deer too. And <laughs> like, for me, it's just really starting to turn into this really fun thing, man. And I just, uh, I, I just love it so much. I love every aspect of it, even the hard. And that's the, uh, again, it's that one preparation, uh, you know, meets opportunity. That's really when you're successful. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Like I feel the same way. I feel like it's where I'm meant to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. And I feel like I'm alive when I'm out there. Like I feel this connection to it. Um, I feel the same way. And I, I really like that point that you made about 15 years of hunting that mule deer spot because, um, you know, I, you know, I think I see that too, where it must be nice and, and my social media feed is, is full of, of big bucks and big bulls and I'm going on these hunting adventures and I'm successful. And I think a lot of guys, you know, it, it's easy to get caught up in that and compare yourself to, to other people and want that, that instant gratification of wanting to kill that big buck. But the reality of the situation is, is that, you know, I've dedicated my entire life to bow hunting. I, I've dedicated, you know, all of the last 25, probably 30 years. How old am I now? I'm dating myself a little bit, but at least the <laughs> last 25 years to bow hunting. Yeah. And there, there was so many trials and tribulations that nobody ever sees on, on social media. There were so many failures. There was bulls getting away. There was empty seasons, empty tags, so much heartbreak, so much failure. And, and that, that was my journey. I had to, I had to learn and evolve and get better and learn from those failures and improve. And so like now when you see it, it's 20 years down the road where I put in all that hard work and and like you said hundreds of days a season into learning these areas and learning the animals and and messing up opportunities to build this skill set that I now have where I can now go to these these different places different terrains and different species and give myself a good chance of success but but I think it's important to realize that this journey takes years and and to to realize that you're on your own journey. It's easy to see success from somebody else. And I always said, like, um, you know, uh, uh, that that I don't get lucky. Like, I have to grind. I have to earn it. I have to work for it. For me, it always felt like it was tougher than it was for everybody else. But now, like, now that I get to a point where I have this skill set and I have all this experience hunting all these different places – Success just seems to find me. I don't. I don't have to. You know, I still put forth a ton of effort, and and I absolutely love it with every fiber of my being. But it, it's like uh, success comes way easier nowadays than it did in the beginning, where I do anything to arrow a, you know, a big six point bull or a big four point buck in the high country. But I just didn't have my skill set there, and so I, I think it's important to realize that it's the long game, not the short game, and to enjoy the entire process, like you said, to enjoy the 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 training, to enjoy the scouting, to enjoy the hunt, and to enjoy it when you're not successful, because 
if you're only enjoying the the triumph or the success or uh, the recognition you get, you're in it for the wrong reasons, and you're never going to get to that place of being consistently successful. You have to enjoy the whole journey, the whole process. Enjoy all the hardships. Enjoy those bulls beating you at that that game you want to be good at, or those bucks outsmarting you, or or making the wrong moves. Like enjoy that entire process, and, and that's yeah. how you become a consistently successful hunter. Yeah, and that's and and which like which is life, right? I think that to your point, there's so many, um, like, I, I, I don't know if the analogy will resonate with anyone that's listening, but like, if you're going to be good at something, you have to really just put the blindfolds on and, and grind. And it's the hard that makes it great. And I've, I, you know, just my background, like I grew up in Westminster and, you know, my, I had a lot of cousins that I, I just, I, I got caught up in, you know, in my cousins that were just not doing the greatest things at a very early age and like inner city stuff. But there was this, oh, there was always this call to the wild and to the mountains. And when I was able to drive and get out there, that's all I did. And I, I, I got away from a lot of trouble and all that kind of stuff. But there, I, I faced a lot of adversity uh, growing up, like w- within family and just because of the way I looked, the color of my skin, you know, whatever, even the way I spoke and when again, when I found the hunting industry and that, you know, I, I think again, I, I've designed my life so I can put forth the amount of effort to be able to do this and do it so much. And that one of the things that, you know, I'll, I'll kind of finish with the elk season here. Aiden sat me down and Aiden's a very, like, I, I just love him because he's very like, I, I don't know. He can just see almost prophetic. Like he can just see things like for his age, it just blows me away. And he goes, dad, and I said, yeah, what, what's that? And he said, I, I just want to tell you, thank you for all your sacrifice and everything that you've done. Because I know that if you wanted to, he goes, literally, you could go do whatever you want. Like you could have taken a sales job. You could have been gone. You could have done all these things. And, you know, you could have been, you know, the, made money doing all these things. And I, and I don't disagree with him, but it, it was more, he said, but you've chosen a life that you put us first and that we get to be part of all these things. And he's starting to see that, especially the more and more he's working with me. And to me, that was like, I don't know. I without getting choked up, it just, man, I don't know. I just, I appreciate it because I don't need to have, I don't need to have a lot. I just, I really appreciate more than anything. You can't buy time. And I'm getting a lot of time with my, with my family doing what I love. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. But it's a lifestyle by design. You're getting me choked up. It is a lifestyle oh, sorry, by design. Man. Yeah, it's like um, those those decisions we make. Um, you know, it's like it's like what do you want in life, and 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 do you want a ton of money or do you want a ton of happiness? You know, and and I think um, the 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 older I get, or throughout my years, really, it's chasing that happiness. And what truly makes me happy is spending time in the mountains and challenging myself and preparing for these things. And so, you know, I'm lucky. I found my passion and and. Um, you you have to before i let you go you got to tell me that story of that giant non-typical buck so you had a good season for mule deer as well not only helping a lot of guys come up with their first archery bucks and and helping your boys uh but you also had some success i saw this giant deer come across my text message feed (laughs) that had so much mass and so so big and heavy and dark horn man that was a beautiful buck yeah uh so there 
without giving away too many secrets, there are there are certain tags that are amazing tags that you can look up like on the front range. And I've been doing that for several years where you can get like a B license tag and an A license tag where you can actually harvest two bucks in the state of Colorado, which um, some guys are going to hate me for saying that, but it just is what it is. And a lot of that country is, you know, it's private land. And I, I don't, again, I, I, I'll go do work. Uh, my sons and I have done work and people that we've met, we have some people that we've met that own, you know, enough acreage that is actually huntable because it backs up the public land and then, you know, deer can come on to, to their place. And the short of that was, is I had just helped or helped a father son do, I was guiding, um, just down in Southern Colorado. And I ended up, the father ended up shooting a night. Like he passed on so many bucks and his name's Ken. Great guy. He wanted to see his son shoot first. So his his son shot a really, really nice first, you know, typical, uh, you know, like 155 inch class mule deer, which is amazing for your first buck. And we packed it out, which his son got the full experience that he wanted. But Ken, the dad was holding out for like a wide buck and it came down to the last morning of his hunt. So it was a five day deer hunt. He shoots this buck and I'm getting these text messages from my buddy that um, lets me go hunt on his place, not far, you know, just right off the front range. And he said, Hey man, the deer starting to move in. And, you know, people have kind of knocked that front range with what we call like that front range hunting because like, Oh, you're hunting backyard bucks. And I would challenge anybody unless it's like a certain area that you can't hunt, but like the areas that you can, you would, you just don't see those deer until maybe you might see these bucks three or four days out of an entire season. And if you see it, and it's even a smaller window to say that you saw them on the place that you actually have permission to hunt. So that is something that people, um, they overlook and they, you know, they think it's easy, but a lot of these places we've never had to pay other than with our time or, you know, bringing gifts of thanks or whatever to like, you know, bring, bringing some guys some beer or some elk meat or whatever it is. Uh, to have access to to hunt a place like this. So anyways, I get this call and um, I said, I'll be there probably in the next day or two. So that was, that was kind of how we left the conversation. So I'm helping out my client. We're wrapping up, celebrating, packing up camp and, you know, really just enjoying this awesome deer that my client Kenneth took. Uh, I, think, I think the buck that he ended up shooting is like 27 and a half inches wide inside on his main beam. So just a stud deer. And um, we end up, I, I get a call, uh, from, from my buddy. I didn't, I didn't respond to like dinner. And he said, literally, I just saw the biggest buck. I was driving into my place and he's like up on the ridge and he's coming down. He's going back up chasing these does. I was like, I'll be there first light. So I ended up staying the night at camp where I was guiding, got up at like 2 AM in the morning, drive all the way back, you know, towards home. And I pull into my buddy's place and I park my truck. And I'm just sitting there and it's still really dark. I got there, I got there pretty early and all of a sudden I see does starting to move, um, not far from his fence line. They're coming onto his fence and, um, this is like at the edge of his property. So I start working in, I said, well, they're going to go hit this ridge. Uh, and I just kind of have an idea of where those, do- the does are residents for sure. But these timber bucks was what I call them. The, these mountain timber bucks just show up. So I didn't even get a look at the deer. Like first thing I'm, I just said, I'm going to go to that ridge and just sit there, got the wind right. And then all of a sudden I see does that start working their way in and I see this buck and I'm like, no freaking way. And when I, I had him at 32 yards and I drew and a doe bumped out. So he followed her and I thought it was over. And then he ended up circling all the way around and I ranged. He was 56 yards, drew back and 
ended up, you know, just the, the shot went through and I, I hit him right behind the shoulder and I literally just watched him run up the hill, probably about 20 yards. And then he just stopped and just started pumping out. And the truth is, is I knew he was a great buck, but I didn't know how great of a buck he was until I actually walked up on him. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? There was snow on the ground. You saw the pictures and it was just, it was super cold, but it was one of those things where I was like, I cannot believe how, because that deer, when I even sent you pictures of him, like looking at him front, like he looked pretty narrow. Like he's not a, and, and I'm not trying to pick him apart and sound like a mule deer snob, but it's not like he's just this great big wide deer. He's super heavy. And then he crowns, he has double crowns on his back, G, G2s and G3s. And I, I, I was just blown away. I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, and a few of the guys, including yourself, I had to send you all the angles so you could really, really see how big this deer was. His the outside of his neck is 28 and a half inches wide, like right at the base of his jaw. So like at the most narrow part of his neck, about 28 and a half inches. Like you're talking an elk, um, what do you, or an elk like form. an elk form. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, an elk form. So like, again, it, it was a quick hunt, but it was also one of those areas that like, if I told you how many hours and you know, the, the trail cams and all the stuff that I've, the, the amount of time I've tried to learn that area, what I've, what I've just chalked it up to is I have a few different areas that I can go to uh, of people that I know that have access to these areas where you can get these tags. And the, the thing is, is that it's really just the luck of the draw. Like I, I, I shot a, a really nice buck in, in a very similar area, not far from this place about five years ago. And it was a very, a very, very similar story, but you have, if you, the, the thing is, if you don't have intel or you're not there every day looking at it, which prior to, you know, me having those tactics even 10 years ago, I would literally get off work and I would drive up there every single evening and just wait and wait for the, for the bucks to come out with it, it, you know, within that season. And it's like a 30-day season. So it's for 30 days, I was constantly up there burning gas, burning time, but it was it was more of just an investment to understand like, okay, th if I'm going to hunt this area and be successful, this is what it takes. And this is the best tactic. So again, I, the fact that I was gone, uh, guiding, I just reached out to my buddy and said, Hey, I don't know if you, they hadn't seen a lot of deer. They, there was a little bit of activity and that's kind of how it is. It's just, it's hit or miss depending on where, where the does go in the heat. And when those bucks come out of that dark timber, which you'll never, ever see, uh, except like I said, for maybe three or four days out of the season, that's been my experience. So it was just, it was awesome to connect on him. And, uh, it just added to like, what an incredible season. I just, I still am pinching myself more over my boys and what they accomplished, but it was awesome to get a great buck like that. Again, just capitalizing <laughs> on, on opportunity. And then I think us, us do it yourself hunters, you know, I think we have more into a successful hunt than anybody else out there. I mean, you talk about paying the fee to trespass on a ranch or something of that nature and having to drop five to ten to go on a hunt, but you add up all the the years and time and scouting effort that we put in to learn some of these units, like for you to be able to capitalize on a great non-typical buck like that, like it, it way exceeds writing one check and going to hunt it for a week. Like, um, it's, you know, it's the same thing with these spots that I hunt, you know, the mule deer spot that I hunt, I've been hunting there since 2007 and, and continue to gain information every year. But, you know, I put 10 to 20 days in a season, you know, over the past 13 years, you know, 150 days. And not to mention it's seven hours. It's across the entire state there and back, wow. you know, every time you're burning two, 300 bucks with worth of gas. And in my early That'd days, be. 
I was a weekend warrior. You know, I didn't have weeks off. I had to work all week and then I jammed down there on a Friday and hunt it for the weekend. But, you know, it's this knowledge and gaining this knowledge of an area. It takes so much to learn. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, I share information about successful hunting. But as far as my hunting spots, I have so much into learning them and learning how they work and how they operate and the way I hunt them that, that I have to hold that, that information close to my chest because it, it does just take so much time and effort to develop a spot. And it sounds like that's exactly what happened on a lot of your hunts is just the time and effort you put in years past is what, you know, created the opportunity for you. And then, you know, having that good hunting skill set that you've built over the years, you're able to capitalize on it. And yeah, I think the thing that people overlook, so I just found this, well, I guess I, I've heard this before, but I didn't put a lot of thought or investment into it. But um, I went to film a high fence elk hunt, like, I don't know, it was like three weeks ago. It was for a buddy that goes to our church and, you know, he just doesn't have a ton of experience. He wanted to take his son out. And one of the high fence places here in Colorado was doing like discounted hunts because they are moving, uh, they're moving ranches. So they're just trying to offload the bulls that they have. So, uh, you know, this 11 year old kid goes and shoots a monster, like 380 bull. And, you know, it's cool. It's awesome. Like that, that was a great thing. But the guy that I was talking to over there, he, <clears throat> in regards to high fence, he said, mule deer are the one species that they haven't figured out how to high fence. Like they will literally stress themselves out. They'll, you know, they'll kill themselves trying to go through a fence just to get to another buck to fight them. And I, and, and he, he went through it in so much depth and he said, whoever finds out how to high fence mule deer. Cause I was like, are you sure? Like you can't, or, and, and maybe you can correct me and maybe there is a high fence place that you know for mule deer, but they, they said it hasn't been done. And when it does, that's like a million dollar operation, right? Right there. But if that is true, it just also checked me on like how lucky I've been and just blessed to be able to take some of the incredible bucks that we've been able to take. Like Aiden killed some, you know, he's, he's taking some really, really nice bucks and Jaron's starting to. And to me, it's one of those things that I'm just like, it, it's almost like the white Buffalo, right? Like it's just, it, it, it's a sacred species. I love, Bow hunting elk is like my favorite thing to do, but it's it, it it's really torn between that and mule deer, especially with a bow, because some of the areas that we're we're hunting and the animals we're taking, like guys will spend thousands and thousands of dollars trying to kill a buck like that, and may never do it in their lifetime. So, you know, people you know may may knock on the front range thing or whatever it is, but I don't care uh, because I know that those deer, it's not they aren't backyard deer. They're not, it's not just something that you can, you can't just go take pictures of a deer like that every day or see them in the summer. You just won't see them. They live in these tiny holes, at least where I go. I've never seen them out just in these fields doing their thing. Now, sure. I've been to places like down in Colorado Springs by the golf course, which is, you know, there's no hunting over there. And you see these monster deer that are are, are out in Parker, Colorado and these people's backyards. That's a, that's a different type of story. But like the, the, places that i've been to where we've been able to hunt you just don't see those deer for and if you do it's a very very short period of time so like for mule deer they're just such a majestic animal that i'm i'm super thankful for all the ones that we've been able to harvest there's a story to all of them 
Oh, I love hearing that. I I love hunting mule deer as well. Um, you know, when I when I first started doing extreme bow hunting, I thought I was going to be a sheep hunter, and I quickly realized that it was a little bit out of my tax bracket to hunt sheep, and that that the tags were really tough to draw. And I still hope, you know, one of these days, you know, that I that I am able to draw a desert or a bighorn. I still apply all over, and I'd love the experience with the extreme terrain they live in. But what I found is that I fell in love with with hunting mule deer in the country they lived in, and I found out that these High country mule deer, I mean, they live up where goats and sheep do, up in alpine basins, steep chutes, cliff, above 13,000 in Colorado or above 10, 11,000 Wyoming, Nevada, Utah, different places. And, and what I also found is that mule deer have such keen instincts. Like everybody wants a big 200-inch deer and or, or a big giant mature buck, we'll say. And they live throughout the West in every different state and multiple different units, and they give mm-hmm. so many tags for them, and they're still so rare to harvest. That's how good a mule deer's instincts are at keeping alive day in, day out. I mean, they evolved thousands of years from avoiding mountain lions that are way sneakier than I could ever dream to be. So, like, I fell in love with the challenge of mule deer and also the, the habitat and terrain they take me to. And I, I love uh, all the way from early season in the high country all the way to, to late season and big mountains, uh, foothills, badlands, desert country. Like, you, it'll take you to so many different habitats. And hunting yep. these different habitats – for these different species, that's what really sharpens your skills is to be able to dial in these different places and be able to consistently find these deer and then consistently find mature bucks, you know. And so it's one of the things I just absolutely fell in love with. And so, like, I'm, I'm glad to hear the same thing from you, that uh, you're a diehard elk hunter and love hunting elk, uh, but have found this love for mule deer in the places that they inhabit as well. Yeah, well, especially I, I, Arizona is very new to me. I have just started hunting it. Well, last year was my first year buying a tag there, and I was there in January. We went there late. the The main focus wasn't really to hunt mule deer. Uh, we we did for a few days, but we already had missed the rut. And the gentleman that was out there helping us, he said, if you really want to get in some good rut activity, like mid December is when it really really kicks on. And it obviously can go through a transition through the state. Like you can follow the rut from the north part of the state all the way down south so I, I really really enjoyed that but uh again that that hunt for me this year going back in december was pure luck like i want to say i got bailed on but the guy i was supposed to meet up with had a family emergency and uh it was what it was so i i, I had some pins that i had uh marked from the year prior there was a crazy snowstorm that had just hit down there like or it you know in the middle of december and uh i just capitalized i was like <laughs> I think I told you the story. I literally pulled on into this two track and I started looking up this drainage and uh very similar story to the boys. That was kind of like the consistent thing. Like barely just get out of the truck and I see a buck working this ridge and beeline it up the ridge and I cut him off. And that was a little bit of a further shot, but conditions were right and it ended up working out. So uh, I just, you never know what it's going to throw at you. It can throw, you know, a whole season of seeing nothing and just, you know, you're at that point, you're just dragging your bow in the mud and then, uh, you have years like last year where you know they're just right there and i i, I love it all man well it it was a 
uh, amazing to to keep in contact with you. Like I really appreciate your friendship, and um, man, it was amazing to see some of these bucks come across my text message feed that that you harvested. Like you just talked about another Arizona deer that you went on a hunt down there and found a nice buck and then arrowed him. I just know how difficult it is out there, and and um, it's so impressive what you were able to do this season. Uh, you know, both for for yourself and with your boys, and you you just um, you sure are raising those boys right into to great young men. So, man, I'm just so happy to connect with you and get you on the podcast again. I'll definitely be hitting you up again in the future. I just um, I really appreciate you, Santino. Yeah, likewise, man. I, I appreciate you, and thanks so much for the kind words, man. Always happy to be on and talk hunting. Like I said, I can we could go longer, but we got, <laughs> Brian got Ander. Yeah, yeah, I could do an eight-hour podcast with you. But, no, that was such a great information. <laughs> so uh, thanks again, buddy. We'll keep in touch. All right. Thanks, man. All right, guys. That's a wrap. Fun conversation with Santino. Uh, man, just so much respect for uh, what he does, getting those boys out and showing them positive experiences in the outdoors. Uh, that that double up on those two mature bucks was absolutely wild. And um, that elk hunt and just uh, everything. He, you know, Santino's one of those guys that's consistently successful with the bow and arrow, which, uh, you know, I know is one of the most difficult things on planet earth. You guys know as well. Like, uh, when somebody figures it out and, and puts the puzzle pieces together, like I, I love to listen to those people talk about what helps make them successful and, and, and just their thought process and how they view, you know, the woods that they're hunting and, and, um, problem solving and, and all of it. It's, uh, it's why I love doing this podcast, but Santino was a great guest. It was a great recording. So thanks to him for coming on and sharing his insight. Also, thanks to Matthew's bows for um, building my favorite bow I've ever used. Uh, God, I just I'm in love with this new V3. The thing is absolutely shooting for me. So um, dialed in and and out looking for a big bear, and and uh, hopefully I run into the right one. But I know that thing is going to do its part and do its deal when I ask it to. Um, just been shooting some great groups with it. So forgiving, hold a tune. Uh, again, just so impressed by these Matthews. So if you guys are in the market for a new bow, uh, make sure to check out these Matthews and at least shoot one. Um, they're just superb. I also want to thank Zamberlin Boots. I swear these lightweight shoes were made for me, even though they're not. They, they're just, uh, it's the popularity of these things in the hunting culture. So you never used to hear a guy is using tennis shoes for hunting, but... And I've been using these things for probably not these specifically, but been using running shoes for 10, 15 years. And through that, like I figure out what works for a hunting shoe and what doesn't, um, you know, they have to be waterproof. So you don't get a bunch of dust and debris in your shoes. And also you can keep your feet dry when you get wet grass. Uh, you know, they're also, they have to be able to hold up to the abuse I'm going to put on them. And, and a lot of these, shoes they make a lightweight shoe but they just don't hold up and and the minute you start putting you know 50 60 70 miles 100 miles on them uh in in super rough rugged country they start to break down that's just not the case with these Zamberlins man it, these are the the best hunting shoe I've used uh they really are designed specifically for me even though they're not but they're they're my absolute favorite shoe so make sure to check those out uh you can find them on their website uh, uh zamberlinusa.com um, 
They're the 215 Saluth GTX RR. Uh, I really like those ones. And then if you have trouble tying your shoes, <laughs> not really, but uh, you can do the 214 Half Dome Velcro. They're real similar. I think that Half Dome Velcro is just a touch lighter, um, but, but um, you know, you're talking like an ounce or two or something of that nature. Um, I, I like them both. They seem to be interchangeable for me and I can use either one for any of my hunts this season. So, uh, as much as I like those 320 trail lights, um, you're probably going to catch me in these hunting shoes most of the season. Really impressed by them. So make sure to check those out. And, um, man, that's a wrap. Um, got this thing done and, and, uh, hopefully be headed out bear hunting here before I know it. It's getting good. I've never seen the grass so far behind. It's like two, three weeks behind where it normally is. And um, we just haven't got the warm weather to melt a lot of that snow. And then I hear our snowpack is down. So we really need some moisture here in Montana. Uh, hopefully we continue to get it and uh, things start greening up here. But uh, great backpacking trip this last weekend, solo trip. Um, um, Man, just covered a bunch of miles. I think I saw four bears this weekend, 12 for the week. Um, so, yeah, it was a really good week. We had a close call on a on a nice chocolate or um, me with another couple buddies there. And um, so, th so that was a fun experience. And then, um, man, just hoping to, to catch another one and uh, get a chance at them and earn a stock here. So uh, going to be burning the candle at both ends, trying to get uh, my work and responsibilities done and then also uh, get some quality bear hunting done. So, um, man, I'm just pumped. I, I love being out in the spring season and chasing these bears. It's just such a riot. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to more of that. What I'll do is I'll sit down. I'm going to record another solo podcast. And so I'll record one and kind of tell you about my season thus far. And there's just so many things that, that come to light as far as public land hunting while I'm doing it, you know. Um, uh, so... So yeah, just want to sit down and kind of recap the season thus far, and, um, and and then just talk over, you know, the the fall hunting season that's approaching now, and um, you know, share my thoughts with you guys. Again, it's like a, uh, it, it, it's like a like a session or um, a therapy session for me to do those solos. Um, you know, I write some notes and and try to make a direction, and then just hit record and see where it goes. So. Uh, I sure appreciate your guys' support and um, the shares and um, social media and everything like that. Uh, it's just been great. Um, so, yeah, man, I really appreciate you guys, and uh, we'll keep bringing you guys the best content. I've got a couple of really good recordings coming up for you, and uh, let's get ready for hunting season. It's right on the cusp of it, you know, this fall season. Uh, it's approaching quick and we'll be here before we know it. And, um, man, the time to work on our skill sets is right now. Um, and I truly believe that, that you can show up in any of these areas and be successful if you really work hard on that skill set. Uh, you know, that skill set of finding animals and, um, you know, planning your stocks, e executing shots, like all this stuff comes down to crunch time. And, um, man, it's, um, it's a super fun endeavor that we have and, um, uh, yeah, I'm just pumped that I that I get another season and um, get to go for it. And uh, so, yeah, I can't wait. All right, guys, that's a wrap. I'm rambling on. This is not a solo podcast. This is the ending to a great podcast with Santino. So, again, thank you guys for the support, and I'll check in with you next week.